Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Tom Rath. He has written most recently the book called Life's Great Question, Discover How You Contribute to the World. When Tom was 16 years old, he learned he had a rare and catastrophic genetic mutation, one that would lead to cancers in multiple organs. After living more than 25 years since his diagnosis, three years longer than doctors predicted, he's not only beaten the odds, but has learned that time is more valuable when you can see your mortality on the horizon. We can all resonate with that. So this new book really thinks and talks about really how you can to the world, uh, which is so critical for all of us. He was uh, on our program a couple of years ago, uh, probably, and uh, I love Tom. So I'm so delighted that he's back. Tom, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Tom, um, you've written a bunch of books. They all sell really well. They all do really well. They're all incredibly personable and connected. Um, why this one? Why now? What's the goal? What are you hoping to accomplish? Yeah, you know, it's a good question to start with because I, I took a step back a few years ago. And as you mentioned, I you know, had this catastrophic genetic mutation and I've been battling cancer in my kidney and pancreas and spine most recently. It's been kind of tough. And doctor said, you know, we're not sure if you'll live till 40. And so I basically, to make a real long story short, I tried to pack as much life as I could into my first 40 years. And then I, I actually turned 40, and I was kind of like, oh, what do I do now? What's next? <laughs> I, it wasn't a really good career strategy, to be blunt. But um, what I did— Actually, I, I, can we ahead. pause there? I yeah. think it's a brilliant career strategy. <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, it's not—it's a painful career strategy, and it's not one that I envy. But it's like, I'm going to pack as much as I can into my first 40 years and then ask the question, based on where I am, what do I want to contribute now? Like, most of us maybe, you know, wait till we're 40 to begin packing that stuff in. So, you know, it's it, not for enviable reasons. And I'm sorry that you've experienced that. But from a strategy perspective, um, you know, we've all learned a lot from you well before you hit 40. Well, thank you for saying that. And it's maybe in hindsight, maybe it worked out because it gave a lot of extra motivation to pack things in there. But well, so when I turned 40, I did take a real kind of conceptual and philosophical step back. And I looked through a lot of research and I was trying to sort out um, essentially if what I realized from all of that work in my first 20 years of my career was that uh, Basically, life's not about what you get out of it. It's about what you put back in. And and those things that you put back in get to keep growing perpetually, even in your absence, whether you're not working on that project a week from now, whether you're in a different job a year from now, or whether you're no longer with us a decade from now. And so the more I thought that through, one of my aha moments was when I figured out that, you know, there's a lot of work out there, and I've been a part of it and added to that about discovering who you are, developing yourself, focusing on your personality and your talents and the like. And that's a good, important starting place. But really, the biggest challenge that a lot of us face at a high level is how do we connect who we are with what the world needs? And 
frankly, when I looked at the big picture, I don't see a lot of work being done around helping people to sort through what the world needs. And the more I thought that through and studied work from everywhere from Dr. King to a, a recent speech I saw from uh, venture capitalist Ben Horowitz really inspired me where he talked about focusing on contribution instead of passion. Uh, that got my head aligned around how do we help people to start with where they can make the greatest contribution to their family, to their organization, to their community, and then kind of work back to who they are and how they can align those two things. You know, Frederick Buechner reminds me of this quote by Frederick Buechner, the theologian, who said, your vocation in life, and I've heard it said, your calling, is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. And it's a similar idea, which is really like, it's, it's that intersection of what matters to you and what matters to other people. I, I am curious, you know, you said something uh, early on that we sort of take for granted, but I think some people are constitutionally set up this way and other people are more in a survivalist mentality and constitutionally set up a different way, which is, you know, we focus more on what we give than what we receive. And spiritually, it's really clear. Conceptually, you think, yes, you know, we know that when we give something, we receive so much tremendously back, um, you know, more than we've given. Like, it's easy on the surface of it to say what's most important is my contribution and, and what I'm able to give to other people and I'll receive back in, in, in you know, manifold. But I think it's also really hard for people sometimes to get there because we're afraid. We're afraid of not having enough. We're afraid of, you know, like we're in, in a survival mentality. We think the pie is a little smaller. We think if we don't have enough, then we need to get everything that we can get as opposed to giving it away. And I'm curious, you know, from an existential perspective, from a philosophical or spiritual perspective even, how do you help people move from you know, one mentality of this sort of survivalist mentality to the one that you almost take for granted, but I don't think people do. It's a great question because I think the the default for a lot of us is that kind of scarcity mentality where, you know, I need to be able to ensure that I'll continue to put a paycheck forward a month from now so I can pay rent, put food on the table, and mm -hmm. if I lost my job, but have less security about what I want to do and so forth. And I think that that's actually pervaded and dominated the typical relationship and unspoken social contract between people and organizations for generations now. And it's something that I think we all need to think about how we can be a part of kind of moving that evolution along. It's moving. And I think most of us realize that if work is nothing but a paycheck, it's nowhere near as sustainable as it could be if it was part of a bigger purpose where we can see that we're making a contribution. And most people entering the workforce today know that they want to get to that at some point, which is probably a better place than we were on average 50 years ago. So I, I think the big challenge is to kind of speed up that evolution of what we expect out of the work that we do on a daily basis. And on a more individual level, one thing that's helped me out, at least personally, is understanding that even when I'm under the most duress and I'm the most stressed out about um, what's going on with family or my own health challenges or whatever else it might be, that the more time I can dedicate in that preceding day to 
things that are focused on the growth of even one other person, whether that's one of my kids or someone who looks to me for guidance in the workplace, that actually takes the pressure off myself and leads to a lower stress environment when you're focusing your energies outward. And so I think both on a individual tactical level and when we think about it over the arc of a career, there are little steps we can take there to move in that direction where work is more than a paycheck and work is something that can be fulfilling for you and make a contribution to the people around you in the process. You know, it also occurs to me that I think knowing that, like knowing that is true, knowing that if we contribute more, if we offer more, that we will receive more, even if it's hard to actually do in the moment, knowing that's true, we can organize our lives in material ways that make it easier for us to live that philosophy out. And I'm sort of thinking like very, very practical ways. Like, are, do you have backup plans? Do, are your, is your, you know, like to the extent that you can control it, and, and many of us can, are your expenses lower than your income? Are you saving money? Are you, are you doing things that create enough of a cushion that allows you to say, I could take risks with my generosity. I could take risks with my contribution and not always worry so much about what I'm receiving and trust that um, I'm going to receive what I need. And if we have a little more than we need, that is like a buffer, it allows us to take that risk a little more. Yeah. And it's, I like the way you talk about that because the financial security matters a lot. I wrote a book about well-being and the five essential elements of individual well-being uh, almost a decade ago now. And the thing I learned from studying that with my colleagues at Gallup and my co-author, Jim Harder, was that until you get past that point of feeling secure about your finances, being able to pay for food and shelter and the like, it's really hard to get to some of those expansionary thoughts. But the, the really encouraging thing that emerged from a lot of that research is that it doesn't take an extraordinary amount of money or a doubling of income in order to be able to have really good days and minimize stress. Once you get past a threshold level, when you really look at daily well-being, some of the happiest countries in terms of their daily experience in the world are countries like Costa Rica and Panama and Paraguay and Uruguay, where they, they have the some of the lowest levels of gross domestic product per capita in the world. So it doesn't require living in a rich country or making an extraordinary amount of money. You just need, need to be able to say, yes, I can make ends meet, and then know that, as you put it, that gives you the time to be able to dedicate to contributing to the growth and development of other people and what they need and creating well-being for the networks around you. Well, and since so much of that sense of well-being, when you use those examples, so much of that sense of well-being comes from the sort of social interactions. So, you know, in some ways it makes me think, you know, if, if everybody around me is wealthier than me, it makes me feel more insecure if everybody around me, if I'm making more money than them, then it makes me more secure and I feel like I have what I need. So to think about the communities that we're in, because sometimes our ambition uh, in terms of who we're connected with keeps us feeling insecure versus feeling like, oh, yeah, I could take some risks. Yeah, and that's it. It's, I mean, the scientists used to look at well-being by asking people where they stood on a ladder with steps numbered one through 10. And that, that uh, item is still used, but I think it's kind of... Uh, misleading because if you're telling people to imagine a ladder, 
I mean, we just imagine you can keep climbing ladders almost indefinitely. And anyone who's chasing a doubling of income is going to be chasing that doubling of income until they die. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. And so I think we need to put all of that in perspective. And really what I've learned from a lot of my work and my own experiences is that our relationships are probably the central currency of a life well lived. And so if you're dedicating time to and investing in the closest relationships around you, there's a pretty good chance that you'll end up really wealthy in this lifetime. So you um, surveyed in 2017 1,099 people to ask them whether they'd rather be remembered for the contribution they made or the amount of financial wealth they created. And of that group, 960, about 9 in 10, reported that they'd that rather be remembered for their contribution. First of all, I have like this totally random, you know, Picayune question, but why did you survey 1,099 and not 1,100? I think we went for 1,100 and one was excluded for the weighting and sampling of that. Okay. What I've learned some... is as long as you survey at least 300 and ideally 1,000, you kind of get good general estimates. Right, right. No, that was great. Okay. I was sort of curious about that. Um, That's a good question. And, and, you know, we sort of talked about even though people say that, they don't often always act in that way, right? So they, they say, I would rather be remembered for the contribution I make to others in society, but they spend their time trying to be focused on the amount of financial wealth they created. And, and I think what you're doing with this book is you're trying to shift that dynamic. You're saying, if this is what you really care about, here are some ways to actually follow through on it. Is that, am I thinking about this correctly? Yeah, the the whole intent of this book and the website that accompanies it for readers is just to start a conversation about contribution. It's, right. It really boils down to that. And so that's what, I mean, we, we talked about this earlier. What I was kind of stuck facing when I was trying to figure out how to get people focused on contribution is, well, if contribution is what the world needs, as we discussed, how do you define the contributions that people make that are valued in society? So I actually started by going back to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics has a big database with all the jobs that people get paid to do in our society. Started with a few thousand of those jobs and said, if you narrow down to the contributions kind of psychologically, emotionally, and functionally that people are making, can you boil that down to a list of 10, 15, 20 things that people do that are common and valued in our society? And so that's where I started to work back to some of these fundamental contributions and then realized, you know, uh, that as we were just talking about, if you're going to build a profile for people of how they can contribute, you kind of have to start with the big roles they play in life. So for me, that's being a dad and a husband and a researcher and then say, what are the most influential life experiences, as we've talked about today here, um, that have shaped who I am? And what are the things that I consider to be my strengths or natural talents? And then you can get into how do you leverage that picture to make a greater contribution to a given team or to an organization? So you you broke this down into these sort of three buckets of individual contributions. Um, and, uh, and there's also, I should say, and we can link to this in, on our website, a, a link, or maybe we can't, I can't remember. I know I, I did the assessment, but I don't know if it's a free assessment or if it's an assessment that you pay for, but either way we can, we can link to it. It's included for everybody who reads the book. Who reads the book. Great. And, um, and there you break it up into, uh, we create, we relate and we operate. Will you just give us a quick primer on those three? Yeah, the, those are kind of the buckets of what a team needs to do, essentially. So when I stepped back and uh, looked at all these 
12 individual contributions and said, if we get a team of three people together or seven people or 10, what are the things that most teams in society are expected to do? And they're expected, I mean, to make something, to have a product or a service, basically. They're expected to be able to form relationships with one another and energize one another for the sake of getting things done. And they're expected to continue operating and kind of having things organized to a level of quality and adapting as changes happen and figuring out how do we scale this up to reach more people, essentially. So within each of those three buckets, there are more detailed uh, contributions. So if we were on a team together, what I recommend is that teams, before they even get started, have kind of a level setting conversation about expectations and say, you know what, a lot of the areas where I'd like to contribute are in this area of creating. So I'm going to help us get things rolling, get things initiated. I'm going to keep teaching people what they need to know about our products and our services and what we're doing. But I need other people on the team to help me build and maintain the relationships. I need other people to help us operate and execute and get things done and scale up for a larger audience. And that, you know, in many cases, the challenge there is when we form teams, we bring people together who are like us or have similar interests, and we all start running on parallel tracks at 50 miles an hour. And it isn't until six months later, we all realize we were doing the same things. Right. <laughs> so if, if we could just step back from the outset and say, here's who I am, Here's who I here's how I would like to contribute to this effort. Boy, it can help to minimize a lot of the friction and keep things moving smoothly early on. So really you're 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 kind of saying with this, this is we're talking about how people contribute to a team, not necessarily just how they contribute in the world in terms of purpose, right? We're not talking about purpose. We're talking about like, you know, there's a role that you play in any team that you're in, and you should play a role that the team needs and that maximizes your ability to contribute. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's funny when you mention purpose. You know, I started trying to look at purpose with this and actually had an early draft of this book called The Pursuit of Purpose. And I, I quickly realized that I, I I couldn't even figure out my own purpose, nor do I hope to ever kind of find one purpose. So um, when I was thinking about the practicality of it, I think what's important for a lot of us in our jobs is that we can actually see how we contribute to unique efforts, even on a daily basis. We don't have to see it every hour throughout the day, but if even once in a day, you can see how you're doing something that directly benefits another person, have some recognition of that or visual, visually be able to see it. If you're preparing food in a restaurant, can you see the person eating it? It's really that practical. Um, that's what helps us to feel good about what we're doing and to want to do more of it. It's great. So let's let's talk for a second about each one of these three, like create, relate, and operate. Um, I took the assessment so we could use me, you know, as an example as well. Although I have to find it, so <laughs> while we're talking, I'll find this. But but you know, when when you talk about you know, there's there's four uh, there's four sort of ways of contributing, uh, in, in each of these. So like what the world needs us to do is to create, relate and operate in these various ways. And then there's, there's the question of, you know, when I'm thinking about creating, there's, I could either initiate things or challenge or teach or vision. So everybody has a way in which they contribute in the create phase or the, the create section, the relate section, or the operate section. And the question is, what are you most predisposed to, you know, like what, what, what way takes advantage of your natural uh, sort of passions and, and competence to some degree? Is that, am I thinking about this right? And if so, could you kind of give us a little bit of a primer on some of the things inside of create, relate, and operate? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a part of it is what the natural talents and experiences and motivations are that you bring in. But it's also, we designed this inventory and this kind of profile as the result of it for people so that anytime you join a new team, you would want to go back through and kind of update your profile and update your inventory because I might need to contribute a little bit more in terms of connecting and energizing people in that relate area on one team, whereas on another team, if someone else, a lot of people are better at doing that than I am, but if someone else is filling in those roles or those contributions on a team, maybe I can do more of the teaching and visioning that I'm more comfortable with in the context of that team or that effort. And so um, it's meant to be far more dynamic and fluctuate based on different teams and different jobs and different places where you are in your career and your life, then uh, a lot of times you'll see assessments out there, for example, that are about personality and likely to be more stable or fixed over time. And I think your personality should absolutely factor into how you contribute to a team. But in this case, it should be even more dependent on what the people who you serve need and what the kind of that other, the demand side of the equation, as I like to call it, I would say your personality is the supply side. And we need to bring more into the conversation about the demand side of what your community needs, what your family needs, what your team needs, essentially. And so, and how do we figure that out? We can't do an assessment. We're not doing an assessment to figure out what the team needs, right? Correct. So So at at an individual level, it's saying, if the big buckets that a team needs are the create and the relate and operate within operate, for example, who's going to help us to stay organized and make sure that things run smoothly throughout? Who's going to help us to adapt? And the minute there are changes and we need to be flexible, who's the person that can help us to do that best on this team? And then also within operate, there's a piece about scaling and figuring out what could we do to help our products or services reach more people? And those are some of the fundamental responsibilities that you need around any team. Got it. Okay. So we're, you're the, the, the actual individual elements of the contributions can almost be like open buckets to what a team needs, you know, and it's kind of whose name are we going to put in here? And, and it, it, it assume you know, I'm sort of thinking about the six hats, you know, the old style of people have meetings mm-hmm. and like, you're going to be the creative person. You're going to be the challenging person. And in some ways that is useful um, in terms of a role, but is there danger of pigeonholing people into the contribution that they're making? Yes. Um, I think it's one of the things I've learned uh through reading a lot of research and my work over the years is that, I mean, take, for example, I've been through a million personality inventories and they've all been consistent in labeling me as being more introverted than extroverted. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've taken that label and to heart over the last 20 years. And I use that as my favorite crutch to avoid about every cocktail party and social (laughs) outing that my wife tries to drag. me. I've always worried about that, about personality assessments. Like it, we end up fitting into the box it puts us in. Right. And, and, you know, in a lot of cases, there's really good research showing that personality can be pretty stable over time. But there's new work emerging just in the last three to five years. And I love it when I learn something that proves my assumptions wrong. And so as I started to see these experiments where they take introverts and they say, you know what, you have to go out and act like an extrovert for a few weeks and you need to go attend these things. You know what happens? Those introverts end up going and they end up having fun and learning something and feeling better as a product of it. Mm -hmm. So I've 
ever since I've read that work, I've tried to force myself out of my comfort zone and essentially to push my personality on the margins. And it turns out I do end up enjoying it, even though I reluctantly sign up now most of the time. And so I, I think it is good for all of us to be more of who we are and know that our greatest area for growth lies in the places where we're already strong, but to also be open to new experiences and things that challenge our assumptions and to try to push those boundaries a little bit on the margin. So, I mean, when you look at those contributions of essentially what you're doing for others and what the world needs, I'm trying to force myself to try some new things within there that I might not have five years ago. Right. What new things are you trying outside of the, I mean, it's, I find this sort of interesting that, that you're finding that you've had success with outside of the introversion, extroversion. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've written a book about kind of energizing people and one called, are you fully charged recently? And right. I have thought a lot about that from a standpoint of, you know, a part of my job is to try and create energy and enthusiasm. And um, as someone, you're someone who's interviewed me in the past, you probably know I'm not one of those naturally super charismatic, energizing people. But I've, I've tried to, I've tried to realize and acknowledge that when I'm speaking to a group or in more public settings, that sometimes people do kind of that energy can be contagious and people sometimes thrive off that and it helps to energize a room and a group. And so I've experimented with what can I do to rally even more of my personal energy for the sake of doing that for other people? And, uh, you know, I've also spent a lot of time um, trying to figure out how I can uh, better scale different products and services and things that we're working on for the sake of reaching more people, even though that's something that I hadn't spent a lot of time, spent a lot of time doing uh, earlier on in my career. Um, I'm curious if uh, someone really wants to, you know, kind of reads the book and kind of has a sense like, okay, so I, you know, I really need to be uh, more of a, you know, in, in relating, I'm high in connecting. And so I, I need to really be playing this role more. But my manager or the board, when the board, it's not really an issue with CEOs, but but, you know, my manager, my colleagues really want me to play this other role. Like they think I'm really, really great at influencing. They misunderstand me. Um, or my manager really wants me to spend like much less time relating at all, like much less time connecting and much more time, you know, organizing. They see me as a project manager where I really see myself as a networker. How do you help a um, how do you have the conversation that allows other people to see you the way you see yourself? It's a really good question. And I think one of the big challenges is that when you're in that situation, a lot of it is about demonstrating that you can do something at a very different level than most people would be capable of in terms of what are the natural talents you have that you can continue to build on and extrapolate on. So I would encourage people to try and stay close to that but know they can use those talents to meet some of these contributions in unique ways. So, I mean, I think there are all certain, in almost every job, there are things that people are going to expect of us that we wouldn't jump to or resonate to right away. But I think a part of why it's important to start with what the world needs is because, especially as a new team's forming, it is a process of kind of negotiating how each person can make a unique contribution so that there are clear expectations up front. And we all feel like we can move forward 
with as little conflict and overlap as possible. And, you know, I'm I'm amazed by how often we get really smart, passionate, well-meaning people together and just never have some of those initial level setting conversations. I'm curious, uh, Tom, what, how writing this book and exploring this and doing this research has changed your personal perspective. Like, how, how are you contributing differently? How are you um, kind of approaching your work or other people differently? You know, it's, I think it's an important question that uh, people in kind of creative roles like I'm in right now need to spend more time thinking about because a good example is, the standard way for an author to reach someone for the last, I don't know, 100 years has been you write a book, it's published in print, and people read it, and you kind of move forward with that model or whatever. But um, everything that I've learned in the last five or 10 years is that um, essentially there's a very limited amount of attention out there anymore. And all of us who put together creative pieces or thinking or learning or writing, we're essentially competing with someone letting the next show on Netflix continue to play, not another hardcover book, right? Right. So um, to that uh, end, I've spent a lot of time lately exploring very different ways to reach people. A few years, a couple of years ago, we worked on a documentary around the book, Are You Fully Charged, to try and help reach people who wouldn't pick up a nonfiction book. With this book, uh, Life's Great Question, we, at the last minute, had a conversation with Amazon who said, you know what, a lot of people read your books in hardcover, they told me, but we don't see a lot of people reading your books in Kindle because Kindle's a different audience, different type of book. And so we created a book based on Life's Great Question just for Kindle readers. And that book's called It's Not About You that we actually put out a month before the hardcover business book. And that was intended for an entirely different audience, no mm-hmm. research, mm-hmm. no application, no stories. Um just trying to reach a different audience in a different way. And I had a conversation with one of my favorite nonfiction authors just a couple of days ago, and we were talking about how someone needs to uh, really reinvent the way we reach out to people in audiobooks because simply having someone read the exact same text that's in a printed book doesn't make very much sense in this day and age either. So mm-hmm. how do you start to reinvent the way you reach someone? And I'm trying to challenge myself to do more of that in the future. And so this sort of reinventing is, I'm looking at the list of contributions and sort of the, is that is that in create and its initiation? Because in some ways you're really challenging also. You're saying, are we doing the right things? Are we, um, you know, am I, am I doing what it needs, what needs to be done? And you're also teaching in terms of saying like, how do I get to people in different ways? And certainly visioning. So it's funny because as you, as you told, as you explained that, I see you having to be kind of strong, like that whole question and conversation that you're answering uh, requires sort of strength and draws out your contribution in the four areas that are all focused within the create sub area. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's where I'd love to spend 100% of my time if I could. I, I With certain teams, I have to fill in other areas, but that's the part that's the most fun that gets me wound up is mostly in that area of creating things. And, you know, it's why... Uh, with this book and with most of the books I've worked on over my career, I've always tried to include a website and some activities for people to use so that instead of it just being a book they read once and put down and maybe never, probably never come back to again, that it uh, hopefully 
becomes a part of a conversation they have with even one other person. Because, I mean, really, with a lot of the things we're talking about here, I think most growth occurs in the context of a conversation and a relationship with another human being. And so if there are any ways, in addition to books and videos and audio and podcasts and the things that we do, that you can give people an activity so they do something associated with it, what I found is that that gives it a better chance of having an ongoing contribution with the people who you're trying to have a positive influence with. Right. It's great. We have been talking with Tom Rath. He has written most recently the book Life's Great Question, Discover How You Contribute to the World. Tom, I so appreciate your perspective and and knowing your story all the more so about the importance that we really have of 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 what we're doing and how we're contributing. And so I appreciate you sort of putting that on our radars and and hopefully, you know, listeners will it'll give us all a pause as it did me to sort of say, really, how am I contributing? And and also like so many other people that I talk to, it's this question of and how do I, once I realize that, spend more of my time making those contributions that that, you know, I love and that add value to people around me and less doing stuff that isn't a particularly uh, useful or valuable uh, fit for me. So, Tom, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having, uh, for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.